Welcome back, everybody, to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London, hosted by my colleague Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Ruers. We're so delighted that so many of you from all over the world have joined us for our first series, where we looked in depth at Freud's 1920 paper, Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Over the next few episodes, we're going to be looking at an essay written in 1919 called Das Unheimliche, or The Uncanny. Sigmund Freud had begun writing Beyond the Pleasure Principle in 1918, and after a few months, he actually took a break from it. And during this break, he embarked upon writing The Uncanny, a paper written in three parts, exploring a very specific theory of aesthetics. It's rooted in horror, fear, and repulsion. And today we're going to be giving an introduction to the text, and and we'll start to explore part one of the paper too. Tom, I'm going to hand straight over to you to tell us a little bit more about the history of Freud's interest in the uncanny. Well, there are one or two references to the uncanny in Freud's earlier works, but you'd hardly describe it as a subject of particular interest for him. Indeed, the term tends to be used in a more descriptive sense. Despite this, we do know that the subject had occupied Freud prior to him writing the text that we're now looking at. The evidence for this comes from a letter that he sent to his colleague Shandor Ferenczi in 1919, in which he rather enigmatically writes that he'd taken up the little thing on the uncanny again. So there obviously is a prehistory to this text, but there is not a great deal more that we can say about it. What is important to remember is the position that the uncanny occupies in relation to Beyond the Pleasure Principle, the text we looked at in the previous series. If you'll remember, we discussed how Freud wrote the uncanny after he had completed part five of Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and that it had acted as a kind of catalyst for the great speculative breakthrough that he formulates in part six. But The Uncanny is, of course, also a crucial work in its own right. Let's dive straight into the text. Um, If you'd like to follow at home, this is from the standard edition of Freud's Complete Works, volume 17, and this is the opening paragraph. It is only rarely that a psychoanalyst feels impelled to investigate the subject of aesthetics, even when aesthetics is understood to mean not merely the theory of beauty, but the theory of the qualities of feeling. He works in other strata of mental life and has little to do with the subdued emotional impulses, which inhibited in their aims and dependent on a host of concurrent factors, usually furnish the material for the study of aesthetics. But it does occasionally happen that he has to interest himself in some particular province of that subject. And this province usually proves to be a rather remote one, and one which has been neglected in the specialist literature of aesthetics. 
Now, there are quite a few things that we could pick out here, but perhaps we could start with Freud's concentration on aesthetics in this paragraph. I mean, what does he mean by this term? Yes, it's almost as if he begins this text quite grudgingly, um, or perhaps there's a, a kind of ironic tone to this. The psychoanalyst is impelled to engage with the study of aesthetics. When he has to interest himself in the field, it's in a remote province that is normally overlooked in the specialist literature. I mean, clearly the specialists are looking in the wrong place. This tone is, is fairly typical, actually, of Freud's attitude to aesthetics. He tends to be pretty disparaging. We might think of the passage in Civilization and its Discontents, where he suggests that the failure to explain the nature and origin of beauty in the field of aesthetics is concealed beneath a flood of, of resounding and empty words. In our text, however, Freud is defining aesthetics as not simply the theory of beauty, but the theory of the qualities of feeling. It's interesting that this text begins with an attempt to define the subject of study. In fact, the whole of the first chapter is really concerned with the complexities of definition. Now, we would probably think of art theory when we come across the word aesthetics. But the way in which Freud is sketching out his terms relates to our subjective response to objects, not to the properties of objects themselves. This way of thinking can be traced back to the first part of Immanuel Kant's critique of judgment, in which he analyzes the theory of the beautiful and the sublime. For Kant, it is not the landscape or the painting itself that is beautiful or sublime, but it is the fact that the landscape or painting gives rise to a, a particular response in the viewer that allows us to call it beautiful or sublime. So for a judgment to be termed aesthetic, it must be subjective. But it is another aspect of this theory of aesthetics that Freud is really taking aim at. And that is the idea that aesthetic judgments are fundamentally disinterested or involve an attitude of contemplation in which the subject is always at a distance. He refers, doesn't he, to the subdued emotional responses. In Jokes and Their Relation to the Unconscious from 1905, Freud had already criticised the notion the pleasure gained from an aesthetic idea should be aimless because the very aim of the psychical apparatus is to experience pleasure. So in the first paragraph you read, Jamie, the reason why the emotional responses are so subdued in the field of aesthetics is not because they are based on disinterested judgments, but because they are inhibited in their aims. The final nail in the coffin of aesthetics is that authors on the subject don't seem to want to get their hands dirty. 
They are happy to concern themselves with the positive feelings attached to the beautiful and the sublime, but they steer well clear of subjects like the uncanny, which are likely to arouse more negative feelings. So, like in the interpretation of dreams, it will be Freud, the psychoanalyst, who will stir up the infernal regions in this essay. So, as you, as you say, Jamie, there is an awful lot in that first paragraph. Yeah, yeah there is. Freud introduces the uncanny as something that's related to what is frightening, but then states that it's quite hard to define it. And his initial descriptions come across as obscure and, and vague. And he seems to set himself a task very early on in the paper, differentiating you know, what is generally frightening versus what is uncanny, what makes something specifically uncanny. So he mentions another research paper called on the psychology of the uncanny, written by the German psychiatrist Ernst Jentsch in 1906. Now, Freud credits Jentsch for, for the idea that what we find uncanny is a totally subjective experience, and it's different for every single person, and everybody experiences it to varying degrees. Now, alluding to Jentsch, Freud suggests that a number of things can trigger that feeling within us, including, and I quote, the properties of a person things, impressions, experiences, and situations. And these can all arouse a feeling of uncanniness. So he takes this paper as a starting point to his own theory. Something that really struck me when I was reading this chapter again was how familiar the opening salvos felt. I'd recently been doing some work on civilization and its discontents, which was published in 1930. And it dawned on me that Freud employs a very similar strategy in the first chapter of that text, in which he analyses the oceanic feeling. In both cases, he deals with a subjective feeling. Here we have the uncanny, which is a specific instance in the field of aesthetics. There we have the oceanic, which is a feeling of boundlessness associated with religious phenomena. In our text, we are introduced to Jentsch as the authority on the subject. Whilst in Civilization and its discontents, we have Romain Rolland, who is the source of the description of the oceanic feeling. In both cases, Freud admits that the feeling itself is unfamiliar to him. He admits to a special obtuseness to the feeling of the uncanny, and has not experienced the feeling of uncanniness for a long time. As far as the oceanic feeling goes, he writes that he cannot discover it in himself. Now whether we take Freud at his word here is of course another question. Whilst acknowledging that both Jentsch and Roland had undertaken some valuable groundwork on their respective subjects. For Freud, neither of them go far enough. Their work is too descriptive. What Freud will do in each case is to go further. 
he will attempt to find the common core that links all of the uncanny phenomena together. In the same way that in civilization and its discontents, he will attempt to find the ideational content that lies behind the oceanic feeling. So we're asked by Freud not to accept these feelings at face value. Or if we want to borrow Freud's archaeological metaphor, he asks us not to accept what's on the surface, but to start digging. Just to integrate what you were saying, Tom, about the core of the feeling into the text. He's trying to get to the core behind the feeling by utilizing two methods. The first is, is by understanding the etymology of the word unheimliche, a linguistic analysis of the word in German, and then in other languages too. And then the second is by collecting data, finding examples of the use of the word throughout language and literature. So before he starts to unravel the term unheimliche, he says, the uncanny is that class of the frightening which leads back to what is known of old and long familiar. Now Freud states he didn't think that Ernst Jentsch went far enough in his analysis of the uncanny, as he suggests that the uncanny is so much more than just what is unfamiliar to us. And from this point, he then focuses on the linguistic angle and goes on to list dictionary definitions. And I gotta say, this is a really unusual effect on the structure of the text, don't you oh, think? Definitely. I mean, it, it certainly disrupts the flow of the text. And this potential disruption was actually anticipated um, by James Strachey, the editor of the Standard Edition. In his brief introduction to Freud's paper, he describes the lengthy translation from the German dictionary as a special challenge for a translator, and also a preliminary obstacle to readers that he hopes won't discourage them from engaging with the text. But rather than see it as an obstacle, we might think of this chapter in a more psychoanalytic way. What does this section tell us about our attempts to search for meaning, to define things? If we treated this chapter as a symptom, how might we unravel its meaning? How might we interpret it clinically? Thinking in these terms, we can start to see the subtlety, I think, of Freud's argument. Tellingly, he begins by consulting other languages. But the fact that, as a German speaker, he is himself foreign to these languages bars him access to meaning. So words themselves, you know, the very stuff of language, can be uncanny. Having reached a dead end here, he decides to consult Daniel Saunders' Wörterbuch der Deutschen Sprecher from 1860 and reprints word for word the entry that Saunders offers for Heimlich. So we're going to attempt to discover the meaning of Unheimlich by defining its antonym, Heimlich. 
Freud also informs the reader that he will italicise certain passages to lay stress on them. Let's consider this passage as a spoken monologue delivered by an analysand in a psychoanalytic session. Freud encourages us as readers to adopt a technique that's similar to the psychoanalyst's free-floating attention. We are asked to read this reproduced passage, but to pay particular attention to certain words, certain phrases, which, pieced together, may offer us the key to unravelling the, the encoded symptom that is the word unheimlich. And we are approaching it obliquely through its opposite, heimlich. Perhaps we're given an intimation here that the unheimlich might have a relation to the unbewusst or the unconscious. In these terms, then, it is entirely appropriate that Freud should insert this dictionary entry here with its italicised phrases. He is effectively offering the reader the opportunity to approach the common core of the word unheimlich with the same method that the psychoanalyst might approach the common core of the symptom. So we've highlighted that Freud embarks upon translating unheimlich into several languages, almost as a way of under, better understanding the breadth of its meaning in his own language, German. There's no direct translation into English, and al although we use the word uncanny as its English counterpart, the literal translation of this word is, it's unhomely. He investigates the use of the German word heimlich, or, or homely, for about two pages, and then he concludes with this statement. What interests us most in this long extract is to find that, among its different shades of meaning, the word heimlich exhibits one which is identical with its opposite, unheimlich. What is heimlich thus comes to be unheimlich. This is a remarkable notion, very and very important to psycho psychoanalysis. You know, something can be its opposite. This is quite quite a shocking idea, really, when you think about it. But but Freud has very skillfully prepared us for this. Firstly, he has revealed that we feel unhomely in a foreign language because we are unable to define or to attach fixed meanings to words. But then he goes on to show that the very word for homely resists definition. In fact, its meaning has different shades, including its very opposite, the unhomely. So we're left with this haunting sense that the very place that we should feel at home in our own language might well be a place that we are in fact not at home. Which begs the question, is there any place that we are in fact at home? This question reminds us of Freud's famous statement that psychoanalysis had inflicted the third blow to humankind's narcissism after Copernicus and Darwin by showing us that the ego 
is not master in its own house. I'm going to read the first couple of sentences of the final paragraph of part one, which really sums up Freud's findings so far. Here Freud writes, Thus Heimlich is a word the meaning of which develops in the direction of ambivalence until it finally coincides with its opposite, unheimlich. Unheimlich is in some way or other a subspecies of heimlich. The notion that words can mean their opposite had been explored by Freud in his short text on the antithetical meaning of primal words from 1910 where he'd suggested that the, that the study of the history of language could be beneficial for the psychoanalyst attempting to understand the language of dreams. I think this really foregrounds the importance of language in psychoanalysis, that meaning is always subjective and will always resist fixed definition. One final example that Freud underlines is the definition offered by Schelling, who writes that the unheimlich is the name for everything that ought to have remained hidden and secret, but has come to light. So we have the notion of ambivalence, as well as the appearance of something that should have remained hidden. This then returns us to Freud's initial definition that you read to us earlier, Jamie, that the uncanny is that class of the frightening which leads back to what is known of old and long familiar. We can see how far, really, Freud has led us from Jentsch's description of the uncanny as being associated with the novel and unfamiliar. By employing the idea of ambivalence, Freud offers us a working hypothesis which involves something that is both known and not known, something both new and old, something that has been hidden and is now revealed. And this is the conceptual framework that Freud will apply to the specific examples that he will discuss in part two. Well, it looks like Freud is now starting to approach a psychoanalytic definition as the unhomely haunts the homely. In the next episode, we'll be looking at Freud's second method of approaching the uncanny, the collection of data. Gosh, that sounds very scientific and dry, but you'll be pleasantly surprised to know that we'll be talking about fairy tales. Join us in two weeks' time for our next episode, or subscribe so that you're notified when the new, when new episodes are out. But for now, I'd like to thank my co-host, Tom DeRose, and our series editor, Carolina Heller. I'm Jamie Ruers, and thank you so much for joining us. See you next time. <laughs>